if you saw one person in a yoga class um, wearing these bangles, inevitably the 20 other people in the class would kind of take notice and it would pique their interest. Welcome to Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast brought to you by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online and in person for a streamlined experience. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful businesses. This is Shwang Esther Sham from Shopify, and this week, I'm helping our host, Felix Sia, share a story from Natalie Holloway and Max Kozlevitz, who are the life and business partners and founders of Bala. Their flagship product, Bala Bangles, are stylish weighted bands that can amplify just about any workout. Since launching in 2018, they've turned an idea on a napkin to a multi-million business. In this episode, you'll hear how the husband and wife team pitched on Shark Tank and had all the sharks vying to be their partner, how they received media coverage from notable publications like Vogue, Marie Claire, and Glamour, and how they're managing an influx of sales during COVID-19. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify Pay. It's a free live chat app for Android and iOS devices. It even works on your iPad. Did you know that shoppers who use live chats are almost three times more likely to complete their purchase? With Shopify Ping, you can share products, exclusive discount codes, and help customers with their purchases instantly. For more information, visit shopify.com slash chat. Welcome to the show, Natalie and Max. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. I know that you guys have seen a lot of growth since launching um, just over two years ago from Kickstarter to Shark Tank. Before we dive into all of that, can you tell us how the idea of Bala Bengals came to be? Uh, you know, it's it's a funny story in that it's kind of intertwined with Natalie and I uh, and our early relationship. Um, we had worked at an ad agency called 72 and Sunny in Los Angeles, working on kind of major brands like Starbucks and Google and Coors Light, I think was the last account I'd worked on. Uh, and it was really it, a quite intensive job um, working kind of around the clock on a deadline oriented business. Um, so we ultimately decided to leave that, uh, that company and uh, traveled for about eight months through Southeast Asia. And it was on that trip that we uh, attended a yoga class that was kind of far more meditative than we'd hoped. Uh, and shortly after the class, we'd said, you know, whatever happened to the wrist and ankle weights uh, from the 1980s? And it was uh, it was in that moment that we just started sketching the idea on a napkin and uh, the napkin eventually became a prototype and the prototype eventually became Bala Bengals. That's super awesome, because I think anyone who works out, we have seen those not so pretty ankle or uh, wrist weights. So you guys have definitely created a stylish alternative. Even with your you know, experience in advertising, how do you jump into product design and how do you kind of get started on developing a product? I mean, we, we basically just like, we didn't know at the outset how to do anything, like how to grow a business, how to do a prototype, any of that. But what we did know is we knew like to figure out the next step. Um, so we basically, um, advertising really teach us to problem solve. So we, if we had a problem like finding a manufacturer, um, we would just start Googling that problem, talking to people, talking to Max's family who's in the toy business. And from there, we just kind of figured out the next step and just kept taking steps. 
how did you test to see like there's consumers out there that also not only like the idea but they're willing to also pay for this new product yeah it's a it's a really interesting question um we didn't necessarily know that folks would respond to it we had this kind of theory and almost a hypothesis that if you saw one person in a yoga class um, wearing these bangles, inevitably the 20 other people in the class would kind of take notice and it would pique their interest. And then we extended that theory even further uh, by saying it's likely that folks would take photos of themselves uh, wearing these, you know, in the context of coming from or going to uh, a class-based workout. And so we didn't really know with any certainty that folks would take interest in it, but we we did kind of theorize that if they did, it would kind of catch on uh, mm-hmm. over time just by virtue of kind of the, the world we live in. The where word folks, of mouth. Yeah, where folks are dressing up to go to the gym. So uh, it felt like it was the right time uh, and right approach for a product like this. And I would say early on, that's where Kickstarter, I think we made the, the right decision by going to Kickstarter because when we launched our Kickstarter, we had no idea if anybody would even be interested in the product, but it was a really great way to test the market. So I would say if your product has like, if you just want to test the market, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, like those are great places to get your product out there um, into these community communities, testing the product and kind of giving you feedback early on before you really like launch and dive all in. And how far do you have to be within your product development when you do go into Kickstarter? Did you kind of already have samples and prototypes that are ready to go? So we actually, when our Kickstarter, if you look at the photos, it's totally a different product than what we actually launched um, because we launched like a very early prototype and it it just looks very different it was so early on we had not gone into production yet so we launched with this like prototype we had it in hand but it was definitely not perfect so we used um the duration of the kickstarter and like the production timeline that we gave the buyers on kickstarter to really like perfect the product and do little tweaks and up until like i mean we were making product tweaks until like a week before we started like receiving the product or something so I would say it was like you you can definitely launch with a prototype prototype as long as you think that it will turn into a beautiful product at the end with some tweaks along the way and what about you know communicating your idea to everyone online it's your concept but you kind of have to distill it into a short video into images and really give the value to those who are backing you and showcase like why this product needs to exist We sort of stumbled onto a product that everyone and their mother is familiar with, but there wasn't a good version of. You know, if you remember the wrist and ankle weights Mm -hmm. from the 80s, they're made of neoprene, which it frankly absorbs sweat. So inevitably over time, they start to smell. And the material is also kind of like loose and clunky on your wrist. So we sort of lucked out. I'd love to say we did it deliberately, but in finding a product that everyone was familiar with, but we're no longer using because of those deficiencies. And so that made it quite a bit easier for us to be able to communicate to folks online what these things were because Mm -hmm. they already had a reference point. These are stylish wrist weights. You know, we didn't need to explain what a wrist weight was. It wasn't the first time folks would be wearing a weight. It's just the best design version 
you know, in, in 20 some odd years. So we, we had some advantages in terms of the product that we were trying to kind of bring to life in a new way. And how many iterations until you guys found kind of the perfect setup with, you know, your cast iron and also silicone that's recycled? Um, what was that pro- like process like going back and forth and finding that ideal design? Yeah, you know, it's as Natalie mentioned earlier, the thing that advertising probably instilled in us uh, the most is to take, you know, embrace an iterative process. So the first version of something doesn't have to be great so long as the last version is. Uh, and we just we just kept going, you know, until we'd felt like it was perfect and it met kind of the standards we'd had in our own minds about how great and functional and beautifully designed this could be. Mm-hmm. And so we probably went through, I want to say, north of a dozen prototypes. In fact, you know, even the use of cast iron was something that we'd used early, but then we discovered that cast iron is prone to having kind of bubbles in the metal, which leads to inconsistency in the weight. So now we're using stainless steel inserts in our design. So, you know, it's it's that sort of uh, iterative approach that is not specific to material or specific to design or colors or the closure we use, um, but it is kind of inclusive of all of those things. Yeah, and I would I would add that we're still like we are always like evolving and perfecting the product. So it's like any little flaw that we see, we're working on perfecting. Um, whether that's like increasing the elastic or the Velcro. Um, so I would say we're still we'll, we'll always be like making tiny tweaks to make it just ever so slightly better. That's amazing. During this whole Kickstarter and launching the business, were you guys still working full time and having this idea run on the silence before jumping in full time? Yeah, I mean, we bootstrapped for a long time. We um, I quit my full time job in advertising about a year ago. And that's when um, we had somebody full-time working on the business, which was me. Max just quit about two months ago. At this point. Yeah, at this point, two months ago. So we really bootstrapped for a long time, which um, really helped us with a lot of our, like, the values in the company and the way we, like, used our cash and our resources. So, and our work ethic. So I'm glad that we bootstrapped the thing, but we definitely bootstrapped for a while. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, too, because, you know, we've all seen those explosion of direct-to-consumer brands that seemingly overnight uh, have a billion-dollar valuation, you know, the the Caspers and uh, kind of aways of the world. You know, our approach was what we like to refer to as just kind of like sustainable growth. We were funding the next production run through the sales of the previous run, and so we hadn't taken on formal investment, and so inevitably you're just going to scale more slowly um but to nat's point you can kind of improve the product along the way you can respond to market feedback and so there is you know sure we've (laughs) we've not become a billion dollar brand overnight and that's awesome and exciting but there is like a uh a slow and steady wins the race kind of approach that uh has been really helpful for us Yeah, you guys are really building for the long term and kind of preparing for a marathon versus just like a sprint. Totally. We believe, you know, we're already designing new products that bring that kind of design sensibility to these otherwise utilitarian fitness accessories. Um, So we believe that Bala 
is not specific to Bala Bengals, but Bala can be a long-term, you know, five to 10 year growth trajectory. And so it's, it's not about um, selling, you know, sales overnight. It's a brand over time, I, I think is the cliche. Nice. So after Kickstarter, you've met your goal. Um, after that, what kind of uh, steps did you guys take to grow a following and have a reach beyond the campaign? So I would say we really, um, again, like our, our strategy was very like scrappy and bootstrappy. So we, um, we really leaned on like, we didn't do Instagram ads or anything. We leaned on free resources. So we um, really worked on like building our Instagram and curating like a beautiful Instagram. And I would say, honestly, that's where a lot of like our early buyers found us. Like that's where free people found us, which was one of our big um, breaks, I would say. And so we really worked on that and like maybe reaching out to press um, that we found online or reaching out to micro or influencers and seeing if they wanted to test our product. Like really that's what we used early because we didn't really have like marketing budgets and money to spend. So that's kind of what we did to facilitate growth early on and get our name out there. Yeah, I would just add really quickly. I mean, for a product no one's ever seen before, there is just a inherent skepticism from a buyer of if it's worth spending money on. And I think that it's true of a consumer product, it, like a, a wearable weight, mm-hmm. you know, but it's also true of a, a shampoo or consumable. You know, I mean, you just, you need credibility through some sort of third party before people are gonna say, yeah, that looks legit and mm-hmm. is worth my hard earned cash. Mm-hmm. And so things like getting a press mention or getting into a known retailer give you sort of instant credibility. And it's kind of that first domino to fall that essentially kickstarts sales and other retail relationships and other press mentions. And, you know, we've just had this almost snowball effect of the very first retailers that found us like free people, ultimately snowballing into our having, you know, hundreds of retail relationships. So it's, it's those first few that you really need to grind for. Um, And and not to say we've stopped grinding, but those are the kind of critical relationships that give you credibility for a product people might not otherwise kind of buy into. And you guys have press, you know, coverage from Vogue, Mary Claire, Glamour, and these are very impressive names. But how did you start reaching out and what was the process like? Because I I bet there's a lot of, you know, it's a numbers game. There's a lot of work that you guys had to put in to get those mentions. Yeah, I mean, I think early on, we, we were living in New York at the time, I think we tried to leverage any sort of connection we had, like we definitely did some cold outreach, like I would go through a shape magazine and look at the editor's name, find them on Instagram, DM them, see if they wanted a product like um, we would really leverage our connection. So early on, I had a friend of a friend that knew an editor at shape. So I asked for a meeting there and then we went up to the shape building and got a feature. And that was like one of our early features that then snowballed into other features. Um, So I would say it's definitely a combo of like, you know, who do you know and using those connections uh, also with like pick up a magazine and look at the editors and literally just reach out to them on Instagram. So that combo really helped us get press early on. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think that once you put something online, the virality happens mostly online, but in reality, there's a lot of like hustling and hard work that happens 
offline in person. So yeah, that's great to hear. So you mentioned uh, Free People, which is a subsidiary of Urban Outfitters. And I know that you guys within Canada, we see you guys in Indigo and Chapters. Also Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's brand also carries you guys. So how do you start reaching out to wholesalers and getting their buying to carry your products? So I think, again, there, that was like, that was a combo. It was, I think, you know, free people, we lucked out. They found us on Instagram. That was amazing. But then, for example, like Bandier, I think Max or myself, we looked up the buyer. Um, we found them on LinkedIn, sent them a message. So it's it was really just like, how same with Goop. I think we probably sent them a ton of messages and never got a response. But then one day, I think they, they ended up finding us. Then they reached out. So it was like a case-by-case basis. But early on, we were doing everything we could just to like find a buyer contact and send a cold email. And oftentimes we wouldn't um, get a response, but every now and then like Bandier is huge for us. Um, They responded and they bought the product and that probably helped us get into a lot of the other retailers we're in. So I would say that's kind of how. Yeah. It's sort of comparable to trying to find almost your first job. You know, I mean, (laughs) you, you have your, your, your parents and, and, family friends saying, you know, reach out to anyone and everyone, you know, and then reach out to those people's network. And all of a sudden you find that you're connected to far more people than you'd otherwise kind of imagined. And you have to be as resourceful trying to get into a retailer or trying to have someone write something compelling about you as you would for, for your job, because in reality, at least for us, they're, they're one in the same at this point, you know? So whatever we have to do to be able to have a meaningful conversation about how Bala might fit into a mm-hmm. retailer's, you know, store is it, we're, we're going to, we're going to do that thing. Yeah. And I would <laughs> say the key there, if you have a great product and you know that all you need to do is get it in somebody's hands, like the key there is all we needed to do was get it in their hands. So we were really just like offering free samples. Um, here's a free gift because we knew once we got it in somebody's hand, they're like, wow, I want to buy this. So I think if you have a good product, get it in their hands, let them play with it, fall in love with it, and then the rest is will follow. And within these relationships, like how many would you say it was fully virtual? You just reached out, asked if you could send in a free sample, and then the relationship kind of developed online versus like the ones that you actually had to meet in person, showcase Bala, and then have that relationship develop. I mean, most were most were definitely online. We happened to meet like the the shape editor I I mentioned, and then also Bandier. I think I went in for a meeting, but other than that, everything was pretty much done online because Free People's in Philadelphia, so it's like that wasn't really happening. Um, so most of our appointments were done just by phone, honestly, which yeah, is great. Yeah, the the one sort of important exception is we have attended quite a few trade shows, mm-hmm. and so you can go you know there there are trade shows for virtually any and every category and so we went to those that had kind of a a fashion sensibility more so than kind of a fitness-based trade show because we'd felt like the product really does belong in more of a free people than you know a a hardcore kind of weightlifting enthusiast (laughs) environment uh it's not to say the product isn't additive there as well but we just that was like our early kind of point of entry. And so we attended trade shows and met buyers there in real life that, you know, inevitably continued the conversation virtually. But, um, you know, so it, it is a bit of a combo, you know, I, I think we, 
deliberately kind of hedged our bets by reaching out to people on LinkedIn, but also attending trade shows. Mm -hmm. And speaking of trade shows, how do you calculate the benefits of attending one? Because I think when you're just starting out and bootstrapping, it is a bit of an investment to go to those events. Yeah, it's ex it's expensive. Um, we literally would just have a spreadsheet after each one, and we, because basically they say that it's like six mo six months post the show where you can see your full and even longer than that, honestly, your full sales because you may have met a Nordstrom buyer, but they actually aren't ready to buy for a, until like a year after the show. So we would literally just have a spreadsheet and every time we got a sale that came from that trade show directly we entered it in and we would we would track the cost versus like our profit and if we were profitable then we just kept going to shows so we probably went have been to like about five trade shows so it seems like a lot of the early growth is done organically you know by building up an instagram and also reaching out to people at which point did you actually transition into like putting in ad dollars and having a bit of marketing budget it's funny because we haven't done that. Yet. We still don't do that. It's horrible. <laughs> We're going too soon. Yeah, honestly, it's it's a question of, of bandwidth and resource. Um, on the bandwidth side, we're a small team. We've just recently hired a few folks to help out. We were selling uh, organically. So, you know, for, for some businesses, you know, actually making that early splash through that advertising investment is critical. For ours, we were kind of riding this wave of interest and enthusiasm from both retailers and direct to consumer uh folks right and that, then i guess on the on the resource side um our kind of critical challenge was inventory management and so every dollar we'd make from selling a product we would put back into the next production run to be able to service the demand for the product so spending money on advertising to essentially promote products we would then not be able to afford to buy kind of didn't make sense for us. So we're now at a point where, you know, through the Shark Tank investment, uh, most kind of obviously we, we have funds allocated to pay digital inclusive of email marketing, you know, Facebook and Instagram ads, uh, et cetera, that it will be rolling out uh, within the next couple months. But I also think that's very refreshing to hear just how you guys have organically built this. So speaking of Shark Tank, what motivated you guys to go on? Well, essentially, I mean, Max always says this, but when you start, when you start any business, like everybody, your aunt, your mom, your friend, they're like, you should go on Shark Tank, especially if it's like a unique like uh, product. So everybody said that to us early on, but then one day um, Max's like family, basically his like aunt or second mom, Nara, said, you guys really should go on Shark Tank. This is early on and I, I was just like motivated by her saying that and so I sent them an email like you can apply via email. And so we did that and then they got back to us and we were in the running for season 10 and it was going to be like our first few months in business. So we, we got up to where I think right before they were going to book our flights to L.A. And essentially they told us that we were dropped off the list and they don't really tell you why. So we were, we were super bummed because it's a, a lot of work. Um, but then, I don't know, eight months later, we get a call from one of the producers saying, would you be interested in going on for season 11 or applying for season 11? We said, of course. Um, so then we, yeah, we went ahead and applied for season 11 and then got got chosen but I mean I think it's one of those things where um, 
if you have the opportunity, like you're in the running for Shark Tank, it's just such a huge opportunity that you just go for it, especially if you're growing your brand, you have a story to tell. Um, so to us, it, it was absolutely a, a no-brainer. How do you even prep for a pitch on Shark Tank? Because I feel like there's a lot of like spinning plates. Like you have to remember your story, the numbers, like prep for different questions that might pop up. I mean, you're prepping for the most intense test you've ever taken. Um, and it's fun and it's exciting, but it's also admittedly terrifying. <laughs> You know, because the show is the show is as uh, as portrayed when you're watching it from home. You you walk down the tunnel and you confront these kind of mega investors that also have the kind of power of celebrity. And you get one shot, <laughs> and you get one shot to do it right. So you know the you you prep accordingly. Um, we wrote our pitch and practiced it no less than a thousand times, and it might be a single word that you're changing. Uh, that just helps the flow and cadence of the pitch. So you'll change it. And after a thousand times, you have it committed to memory. I could recite it now, but won't. Yeah. Um, and what we also did was take that same approach for uh, the Q&A and mm-hmm. just kind of did a bunch of scenario planning. What happens if no sharks are interested? What happens if yeah. all of them are? What happens if they lowball us on the valuation? You know, what happens if they you know, give us a, uh, a royalty deal, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, Mr. Wonderful loves to do. So all like having watched every episode of Shark Tank yep. at least twice, uh, we can start to piece together the questions we thought they might ask. And then also just kind of exhaustively listed all the other questions they could potentially ask just so that we were prepared. Yeah. Um, so we just took it really, really seriously because again, it, it's, a, it's kind of the most important test of, <laughs> of our lives at least yeah and i would say that basically i mean obviously we watched every episode and wrote down every question and kind of rehearsed with each other but another thing that really helped us prepare right before the show is we had friends and family come over and pretend to be the sharks and be a panel and they would be like they would just like give us a hard time and we'd get flustered and it was really helpful i think to do that like role-playing um shark tank experience like the night before the show two nights before the show and that way we were really like prepared and um, with other people like actually testing us. Those are some great friends. Also, I feel like it's very serendipitous because you guys ended up being on the episode with uh, the guest shark, Maria Sharapova. So it's like perfect having an athlete investor and then also having, you know, the five sharks like kind of fight over you guys like what was that feeling like because I remember seeing you guys kind of whisper to each other during that period like what were you guys saying to each other at that point it was like extremely surreal and overwhelming because I mean you have to go in there assume like thinking that they could pick you apart and that's fine too because they do that that they're sharks so for all of them to be in we we could not believe it I mean I've I had a dream the night before that Mark and Maria the people we wanted actually wanted us and it came true so that was that was awesome but basically I mean it was it was really crazy surreal overwhelming feeling um it's funny if you've watched enough Shark Tank you've seen businesses that you think are really interesting and compelling not do all that well in the tank and similarly you've seen businesses that you don't think are all that interesting do really well you know and so you really can't predict how things are going to unfold you know we had confidence in the product idea and we'd had sales to kind of validate the at least the market interest in it 
And so, you know, we'd felt good about our business and brand, but you have no idea if they'll ultimately take issue with it and, and feel the same way. So it was the most surreal experience of, of my life yeah. to have, you know, five sharks that I'd watched for 10 years on TV, uh, if not longer for, you know, like Maria Sharapova has been a tennis icon for yeah. the last 20 years. Uh, you know, it, the, it was the, the most surreal experience, uh, yeah. imaginable. And I think I was whispering, because you asked what I was whispering. I think I was whispering like a lot of things, but one of the main things toward the end was like, take the deal, take the deal. Um, because I really wanted him to take the deal with Mark and Maria, but yeah, um, we were, we, it's what you don't <laughs> necessarily understand is they're having conversations amongst themselves while you're standing up there at, at points, you know, they, they obviously were having a bit of a dialogue. So we took those moments to try to, you know, connect, connect <laughs> with one another and, and make sense of how we wanted to handle this because you're, I mean, you're literally, you're on the spot uh, and you're making huge uh, commitments based on the company you've worked on for, you know, thousands and thousands of hours. So it's it's a really high stress situation, but obviously it, it, it played out really well for us. And now how's life um, after the episode has aired and what are you guys doing to kind of like meet this exponential growth and demand essentially? Yeah, um, it's interesting because our episode aired on February 28th uh, and it was only a few short weeks later that folks started sheltering in place mm -hmm. uh, in light of kind of the, the global pandemic. Um, and interestingly, we did see kind of an uptick in Bala as a result of folks trying to stay fit while, while staying home. Um, so we kind of had this one-two punch of the exposure associated with Shark Tank and then interest in fitness products, not exclusive to Bala, but inclusive of Bala, mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, all over the world. And so we did everything we could to, to, to service that demand and are kind of continuing to do so. We eventually ran out of product, uh, fr frankly. And so, you know, we, we'd started offering pre-orders on our site mm -hmm. to get folks product as quickly as we possibly could. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it's kind of, uh, could never have anticipated, uh, that interest and demand associated with Shark Tank and then, and then you know, kind of a second wave associated with the pandemic. So we've been doing pre-orders, but then we've also been posting like free workouts to our website. We have a workout section and then doing like Instagram workouts as well to just like keep the community engage, engage and also give our, uh, community something, even though they can't buy our product necessarily right now. Um, so that's a way we've been trying to like keep up with like the demand and stuff like that. So have you guys faced some of the logistics and shipping restraints with COVID-19, um, especially with like working with manufacturers and then also meeting the demands of not just your consumers, but also maybe some of the wholesalers as well? Yeah. Um, you know, navigating those uh, challenges is kind of new to all of us, mm -hmm. right? Because this is uh, unprecedented. Thankfully, we have a really strong relationship with our uh, manufacturing partner in China. And so we were able to be really communicative with one another throughout the process. And because China, you know, s started to recover as it was really hitting the US, like, we were just trying to be transparent with one another about the lead times necessary to produce and deliver product. And so everything is happening more slowly, um, but because we are armed with the information about those timelines, we can, 
you know, be communicative with customers on when a pre-order is likely to come through. So, mm -hmm. you know, the logistics have gotten harder and more complicated, but uh, we've just tried to be as kind of open and honest and uh, communicative with both our suppliers um, and our customers about, you know, kind of navigating those delays. And I, I would say on the retail side, it's the same same uh, situation. Um, you know, retailers um, are are looking to us for clear and accurate timelines on when product can arrive. And, you know, we've had to have some hard conversations around those delays, but they're, they're necessary ones. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, uh, at home workout equipment is one of the categories that does see a growth during this time. Um, how has that been like navigating that? Cause I know that it's hard to see maybe friends who are going through a tough time or business going through a tough time and you're trying to be helpful and also manage your own set of challenges that you've essentially never dealt with before. It's been a strange thing because, you know, uh, this the broader circumstances are obviously horrific, right? And so what we've done as a brand is try to add value to people's lives uh, by uh, doing Instagram live workouts with uh, trainers that we know and also sort of fast-tracking an effort to uh, create Bala-fueled workouts, and we've put those up for free on our website. So basically giving people an outlet, not just by using Bala products, uh, you're welcome to come to the site whether or not you purchase Bala, but giving them a workout that uh, can, you know, help them keep moving while at home. So, you know, I, I think as a brand, you have to be realistic about the value you can bring to people's lives in a particularly kind of terrible situation like this one. And for us, that meant, um, you know, providing a resource for people to continue to work out while at home. And that's also offering people a sense of normalcy um, and routine to just kind of like give a little bit of distraction from everything else that's happening in their days. Totally. For sure. So you mentioned that you have a really great relationship with uh, the manufacturer that you have now. What was that process like finding that one manufacturer did you guys go through a whole bunch and how do you work with someone who's you know on the other side of the world yeah i mean i would say well early on we found the manufacturer because max's family is in the toy business so we asked around like his dad and his uncles and got a, a random contact at a factory that might be able to help us so he helped us with our first few runs but then the factory that you're using now was actually a guy who reached out to us on Kickstarter and he just was so persistent. He kept reaching out and eventually we gave him a chance and he is the best partner, him and his factory. I mean, we love working with them. Um, it's, it is, it is interesting because like our days start at different times, obviously, but it's, we're really like the way we work together is just, we're always in communication. I mean, we're always like texting or emailing all like all day and night and um, really just being really close partners. And that's the way we work together. I mean, we went overseas before our first production run to see the factory and make sure everything was good. And we would, we were going to be doing that right about now, but obviously COVID happened. So I think the best, the way we work with them really is just like close, close communication because you really can do everything online these days and be texting and calling. Um, and so we just stay really close lockstep to get the production perfect. That's so cool to know that, you know, Kickstarter not only helped you guys validate this idea, get a customers, but it also got you a supplier. 
Yeah, I know. It's really crazy. Totally. Honestly, it's also smart on this the supplier end because I think what they, they do fairly methodically is monitor Kickstarter. And when, mm -hmm. you know, a project is funded and the the uh, authors of that project aren't necessarily familiar with production, they can come in and say, you know, we, we can produce this uh, for you rather, rather simply. So, you know, uh, to Natalie's point, kind of treating our suppliers as partners rather mm -hmm. than, you know, vendors um, has just gone a long way for us to kind of co-develop new products together mm -hmm. to make those incremental improvements to the existing products. Um, and, you know, to explore things that we wouldn't otherwise even know were possible. That's awesome. Um, I also wanted to talk about your content, which is editorialized, beautiful, and at, like, which point did you decide, you know, this is the direction we're going to go versus kind of a more hardcore workout focus? It's more fashionable. And I feel like, I don't know, I just really love how you guys have approached it. That's really sweet. Thank you. We we basically like early on we were like we we're entering this uh, the fitness market and we thought how could we differentiate like from a branding perspective aside from product how could we differentiate ourselves so that some that we look different than any other like legging activewear brand out there and um, we thought that that would be by doing like a little bit of like um, more of the fashionable tilt almost like ridiculous like some of our photos are ridiculous and not not fitness at all and so we thought that that would be like our entry into the market and that could that would be what we could own so early on that was our strategy and we had um our like brand director who is my sister does all of our content and she is she honestly just has such an amazing eye and she's really good um we all collab on the photo shoots but she really drives the content and that was like always her vision too which really really helped early on and we were just like very clear that we didn't want to like put anything out that was basic we wanted it to be like just fashion forward and so not fitnessy I mean every now and then of course we'll put out some fitnessy content but we wanted it to be more editorial and unique and just like kind of different like why is that a fitness brand <laughs> yeah and Bala I mean Bala does sit at this interesting intersection between fashion and fitness and, you know, it's a fitness product with fitness benefits. But, you know, this idea that you're the, the person you are in your everyday life is different than the person you are when you go to the gym. Like one can be really fashionable and considered and the other is all about being hardcore. It's just a division that didn't really make much sense to us. So we're treating a fitness product as part of your fashionable life uh, and you know, fashion is awesome in that it's unapologetic and can be absurd and still feel powerful and kind of like energetic almost. So it's it's been a really kind of like really like gratifying approach to the product to be able to just like challenge some of the, the norms we've all come to accept around, uh, you know, the fitness space. It's very refreshing. I can see why free people would notice you guys because it is just so different from all the other fitness Instagram content that you see. Well, thank you. Um, That's very nice. <laughs> no worries. Um, speaking of your sister, I know that your team is actually quite small. Was that a conscious decision to keep your team kind of lean instead of like expanding and having more staff? 
We, I mean, we like, I think everything goes back to like the way we bootstrapped and we are, we are so lean even to the point where Erica, my sister was hired before Max came on full time a month ago, you know? So it was like, we, I think that was, that's just like ingrained in our brain to be lean and um, try to always be as lean as possible. But recently we have grown our team a little bit. We have a, a head of sales. We have, we've hired my other sister, Jessica, to do customer service and sales. And then we also have um, Erica, the other sister. So we're a team of five right now. Um, and I will probably, I be, by the end of the year, could grow by a few people. So we're basically, we try to outsource as many things as we can. So whenever we do run digital ads, we'll be outsourcing that to a, a guy we know versus like bringing somebody in-house. So as, as much as we can outsource to operate lean, we will. But when there becomes a need for an in-house person, that's when we decide, okay, it's time to bring another person on essentially. Yeah. And I would add, I mean, it's funny. We have friends that have started businesses by raising money first, uh, and then they're able to hire up with with that that cash um and all of a sudden almost overnight you have a team of 10 that is like fully functional and you know all of your disciplines are covered and you know as natalie mentioned we've just taken a different kind of grassroots approach on all these elements of the business so we're kind of scaling relative to need as opposed to just building a team and then trying to scale from there um so it's it's not to say any one approach approach is better than the other but just based on the kind of genesis of our company it it's made sense to 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 do it this way so you guys being life and business partners at which point did you realize you know we can actually work together and we actually complement each other very well um in a business setting yeah you know it's it's funny it's it's not something uh, that's as simple as kind of writing roles and responsibilities on a piece of paper. You you do over time learn one another's strengths in a business setting, and uh, it's not a real linear process. But because we are life and business partners, um, you know we figured it out over months and years about what each of us should own, uh, and then kind of allowing the other person to own that thing. So Natalie kind of owns the uh, the supply chain um, and those logistics, whereas I'm kind of more in the like product development space am amongst many, many other things. You know, we, we each wear about 15 different hats, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not something that I think either one of us would say is like easy to navigate, but you do figure it out over time. Uh, and thankfully we're now in a place where we understand, uh, what each of us brings to the table and we've kind of ch chopped up roles and responsibilities, uh, accordingly. And for like other couples who might think about venturing into this dual professional personal life, what would you say is like one thing that you guys really cherish to make sure like there is a balance between personal and professional life? I think, I mean, that's definitely hard, especially when you're running a business that is like a lean team and growing fast. Um, it's kind of like you're always working, but we try to do like, we'll lately we'll do things like, I mean, it's all different now that COVID's happening and we're all shelter in place, but um, we'll do like a we have to work one at least one of the weekend days but maybe we'll do like sunday off and so it's like we try to just like 
not talk about work and go enjoy each other. Um, or maybe it's like we have we take the full weekend off and maybe we just like work, have a, a concise meeting like from 11 to 12 in the morning and then are not working the rest of the day. And we're just like enjoying each other. So we try to do that or we'll go on like dinner dates and we'll be like, let's not talk about work which never really happens. Um, but I would say, like, that's kind of how we do it. I don't know. Yeah, uh, to the extent that it's possible to create separation between church and state. Like, that, so that's hard. that's the intent, is to create some boundaries for um, for the business and some boundaries for our, our own personal lives. Uh, admittedly, they're, they're basically one in the same. Um, so it can be hard to do that. Uh, you know, I sp- suppose the other thing that is... Um, it's not all that deep, but like to the extent that you can just keep it fun, you know, I mean, there's going to be days where things are really, really stressful and, you know, throw on some music and just get it done. I mean, you know, that there's, there's no real alternative, you know, you can embrace the stress or you can just kind of rise above it. And so (laughs) when things have been at their worst in terms of like logistics and, uh, you know, the kind of daily challenges of running a business, we have tried to flip the switch and make it as fun as possible. Awesome. And I noticed that you guys now have a bit of apparel and there's sliders in addition to the bangles. What else are you guys exploring right now? And what are some new things you guys want to tackle? I'm like passionate about this particular question. I, I think what we have stumbled on with the Bala bangles is that we now live in this world where people are dressing up to go to the gym. And when they get to the gym, the products they are interacting with while there are sort of under-designed. Um, it's, it's this weird tension of beautiful people going to a not-so-beautiful space. Uh, and so, you know, we are we are actively trying to bring design to fitness products and accessories that might not otherwise have seen much innovation in, you know, years or decades. Um, so I, I, I don't think we're prepared to say specifically the kinds of things because we're, we're launching some new products in June, but it's basically bringing a design sensibility to these otherwise kind of utilitarian products that um, is our product development strategy. Yeah, so we have like two really exciting products coming as Max mentioned in June. Um, but I would say our products are basically we want anything we ever put out, we want it to like inspire movement. So you see it and you want to like move with it or just like incorporate it into your everyday life. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we can say there, but yeah, stay tuned for some fun stuff in June. That's exciting. I'm excited to see like the ball of flair within like all aspects of the gym. I feel like you guys, like acknowledge that you don't know certain things and you go for it anyways. How do you take that, like take that realization to say, I don't know this, but I'm going to chase this idea anyways. I think we've like actually like learned that along the way. So early on, it's like even just, I mean, the back end of Amazon, anyone who sells on Amazon knows it can be a beast and really challenging. And you have to watch these like 30 minute tutorial videos to set up your products and add inventory and just deal with drama on Amazon. So that's an example where it's like, okay, well then we figured that out. So then it kind of gives you confidence to figure the next hurdle that comes your way out. So I think early on by just honestly, just doing it rather than having it on your to-do list, like there was a sense of like peace when you did figure it out and it kind of gave us confidence to then go do that with another challenge. 
Awesome. That's great to hear. Well, thank you so much, Max and Natalie, for chatting with us. I'm excited for the new product launches for you guys. Yes, thank you. It was so great chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Shopify Masters. My name is Shwang Aster Shan. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode, so please leave a review wherever you are listening. Next week, Felix is back with another interesting conversation with a Shopify merchant, so please stay tuned for that. Until next time.